Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. My name is Ian Stasikevich, and I'm a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. This episode of the American Cinematographer Podcast is dedicated to the 22nd annual Camera Image Film Festival. Camera Image is one of the few festivals in the world dedicated solely to the art of cinematography, and of that rare company is widely considered to be the best of them. Every year, cinematographers, students, and filmmakers from every facet at every level of the profession converge on the small town of Bydgoszcz in Poland to see films, attend classes and seminars, and talk shop late into the night with acquaintances old and new over glasses of bison grass vodka and plates of pierogi. Some folks like to say, what happens at Camera Image stays at Camera Image. But this year, I asked some of its attendees to share their personal experiences from the festival. First, I wanted to talk to a cinematographer. My name is Michael Neubauer. I'm the general manager of the German Society of Cinematographers, BVK, situated in Munich. And um, I visit Kamerimage since uh, the year 2000, coming every year, because Kamerimage is a unique uh, event. It's a film festival of its own kind, showing the art of cinematography in all its um, possibilities. And on the other hand, it's a big marketplace, uh, showing equipment, bringing lots of students together with the professionals. And so uh, it gives you wonderful uh, impression of the art of cinematography every year. Does the fact that Camera Image is set in Poland affect the festival experience in terms of the kinds of films you see uh, and the kind of people that you meet? Yeah, I think this festival really belongs to Poland because on the one hand you have a great film history of Poland and on the other hand it is possible to organize such a kind of festival uh, in Poland uh, by the economical and infrastructural uh, possibilities you have here, by the effect of the uh, separate uh, currency here, the, the zloty, you can uh, organize that in a way and in, it would be totally impossible to have such a festival for instance in Germany because uh, it would cost much too much money. There is one uh, more very interesting aspect because it is one of the most important things, this is not a red carpet festival. There is uh, very few actors and there are not many directors. There are actors and directors, but um, uh, this is not something to present yourself and to make marketing of your own. This is something to learn about cinematography. And even the professionals being long time in this uh, industry, they learn a lot here because they have the chance to uh, talk to each other, they have to talk to uh, the students with all their new experiences and their new technical approaches to cinematography. In terms of the attendance and the cinematographers, the, the creative people that you come into contact with, it seems that you're able to see films and also you, you're able to meet other uh, filmmakers that you might 
never get the chance to meet uh, in Los Angeles or New York or even any other sort of like large metropolitan city. If you look um, to the very nice uh, cathedrals in this world, they are sometimes in places you wouldn't expect. And they are sometimes not in the biggest cities, but in small towns. And uh, they give you the quiet of a monastery and a kind of clausure uh, and uh, concentration on the topics you uh, want to deal with. And it helps not to be in the middle of the center, uh, but in somewhere uh, in the, on the countryside in lovely Poland, uh, what is worth seeing too. Uh, and uh, you have the chance here to concentrate on filmmaking, on cinematography, on education, on learning. And you wouldn't have that in a big uh, uh, pulsing metropole somewhere on earth. How do you feel that camera image has changed and grown over the years? It definitely is getting bigger somehow because it started uh, uh, with less juries and it was added time by time a new kind of section to the festival with the new aspects of cinematography. But in the nucleus it stays what it was born, to focus on the professionalism of the art of cinematography, to look what is in our art and in our business the top level. So this is not about broad mass entertainment. This is about the art of cinematography and that is giving so much uh, creativity and inspiration to everyone coming here. Next, I wanted to find a director. My name is David Scott Smith. I'm a director from West Hollywood. And uh, I also have a background in editing. And I'm here at Camera Image. Actually, I have an interesting situation. My uh, fiance, Svetlana Svetko, is a DP and is on the feature doc jury, and also had a film that played here out of competition called Red Army. So I'm the kept man this week, which I'm really, really loving. I have no duties, no responsibilities, uh, but a pass. And uh, I am so impressed with Camera Image, to be honest. I've been going to all the panels and seminars and uh, all that sort of thing uh, and just hearing some great knowledge being passed down from uh, Papa Michael and uh, Caleb and all kinds of great people. So I'm having a good time. And then, you know, the technology side of things has been really interesting for me too. Uh, we're in the market for uh, an Amira and so to actually have all the people who invented that camera here and uh, get to ask them questions and tell them things that we hope the camera can do in the future. It's been fantastic. Is this your first time at Camera Maj? Yeah, this is our first time at Camera Maj. Uh, did you have any expectations? Had you heard about it before? Or uh, uh, did you kind of come in, you know, kind of flying blind? Well, I actually submitted a short film here uh, that I was hoping would get in, but uh, didn't get in. And. Uh, so I know it's a cinematographer-based festival, but I've never been in a room where the director is not applauded and the cinematographer is applauded. And that's quite an awesome experience, I have to say. You said that you attended uh, some of the panels and workshops, uh, and are there any that stand out for you? Yes, uh, there are several panels that stand out in my mind, but the one in particular, because of my editing background, is the Filmlight Color Space Workshop which is such a geeky thing to be in love with, but the way the host explained uh, where they're trying to go, you know, where even the Academy is trying to go with color space management and ACES and 
and all that sort of stuff was fantastic. And the other half of that was, you know, the, the host asked the audience, you know, who among you are DPs and who among you are post people? And so he said, post people first, show of hands. There were only two of us. So to be in a color space management seminar where there's only two post people uh, was really, really telling. I mean, DPs give a shit about this stuff too. And that was quite an inspiring thing. Uh, what are some of the films that you've seen while you've been here? Well, again, I've been I've been focusing a bit more on the seminars and a bit less on the films because I believe that the people's stuff, you know, you'll never be able to recreate, and uh, and the films, hopefully, I'll get to see again. You mentioned having an interest in looking at cameras and, and the technology that's on display here and having access to the people behind it. Is there anything that's, uh, that you feel that's particular to camera homage in terms of, be, of having access to vendors who perhaps aren't necessarily here to sell a product? The caliber of people that come here are top notch. They are the best in, in every business, every aspect of this business in my opinion. Those people, right along with the rest of us, are witnessing the unveiling of new technology. So it's it's fascinating to go from a lighting workshop by Papa Michael over to a situation where he's witnessing new technology and the, the world premiere of a demo of a new camera and all that sort of stuff. And so I definitely think that the, the manufacturers are here to hear from the users of their technology. You know, uh, I had a long talk with the product manager of the Amira about anamorphic and you know hawk lenses do make a, a 133 anamorphic lens but uh, Amira doesn't yet do the unsqueeze of the squeeze you know it doesn't display it properly and so we're knocking on their door saying hey we want that as a function and so there's definitely a symbiotic relationship going on here the market at Camera Image is like a mini trade show where vendors and manufacturers can show off their latest products. But being Camera Image, the vibe is characteristically laid back. The sales pitches are tuned down, and the attendees are treated to a more hands-on experience with everything from new cameras to lights and filters and lenses. Let's talk to another first-timer, this time from the market. I'm Phil Greenstreet. I'm with Roscoe Laboratories in Los Angeles. Um, Roscoe are typically known for doing gels, that kind of stuff. I'm actually in the backdrops department, so um, it's a slightly different group of people that I normally deal with. I'm more production designers, but this seemed like a really good chance to get to know the rest of the team, as it were. Uh, I understand this is your first time at Camera Maj, and, and how did you come to find yourself here? We've had guys who came in the past, left no notes whatsoever, so uh, to a degree I was a little adrift. Um, I was fortunate enough to have breakfast with Stephen Poster in Los Angeles about a week before I came out. He gave me a lot of good suggestions, and then it's, it's just really been networking with people, seeing who I know that knows this place, and then contacting them. Did you have any expectations coming into the festival? Coming into something like this is always a bit dodgy. I mean, everybody likes to talk these things up. I mean, partly because they want to go back again the following year. So the last thing they want to be telling people is that it's not a good show. So sometimes you get a bit worried. In fact, this has totally exceeded all of my expectations. It's just fantastic. The, the quality of people who are here, the quality of the work that's being done, everything is, is absolutely top class. It seems like it's a, it might be a bit different from uh, a trade show because this is a cinematography festival. And have you found, uh, is this a bit more relaxed? Is, is the, the, I guess the timbre a bit different compared to something that's more like a, um, a CES or NAB? Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I actually 
detest trade shows. They're, they're not my thing at all. Um, standing around on a booth for hours on end seems absolutely pointless. There's, there's much better ways to spend your time getting in contact with people. But this isn't about this. That, that, this is more of a, a community. It's a, it's a sense of getting to know people and uh, just making person-to-person connections, and, and I love it. It's, it's been brilliant. Do you have like a, any a particular moment from the festival that stands out for you? I was very pleased yesterday talking to designer uh, David Gropman, who was uh, on one of the panels. He was telling me that Marcus Ferdera, um, Munich DP, has actually been showing people images from his last movie of my stuff. And that was, was kind of cool. I mean, getting feedback I mean, David's a huge guy. And then I, I met Roman, the, the DOP on Fury. Had a really good talk with him today. And, and that was exactly the kind of thing I was looking for when I came here. I mean, it was just that, that getting to know the guys who are, who are working on the big movies. What are you looking forward to? We only have a few more days left in the festival. I'm actually going to be looking at this um, showing of student films tonight in the multi-kino. I thought that looked kind of interesting. I, I, I've done quite a lot of work with students in the in the LA film world. It's going to be a different, you know, a more international crowd. So that's that's of interest to me. I mean, I feel like I, I I hate to say this. I feel like I've always almost done as much as I can possibly do. And there's a certain saturation starting to set in, but every day surprises me. Every day there's some new gem appears, and and off we go again. Next, the folks over at Codex were game to talk about some of the things that they brought to the festival. I'm Sarah Priestnell. I'm the VP of Market Development at Codex, and uh, we're here at Camera Image with some of our products. Um, we have a, a, a tiny little camera here called the Action Cam, Codex Action Cam. What it is, it's a it's a HD resolution camera, but it's actually a 12-bit raw signal, so it gives you really amazing pictures for the size. It's tiny; it's like an inch by two inches in size, and uh, it's already been used on some uh, some movies by uh, Stein van der Becken, ASC, uh, Una Menges, and Martin Rue. Um, and it's a great camera for anywhere where you need a, a small camera. So it can be attached to a bicycle helmet, used for stunts. It can be uh, on a car. We've also had people building uh, rigs with um, uh, eight cameras. So they get a 360 rig for uh, virtual reality for things like Oculus Rift, which is an application we didn't even really think think of when we designed the camera, but seems to be a really big thing now. So it's really a, a really high quality camera that can be cut in with other cameras like Alexa or F55 successfully. but in a really small footprint. Here you've got the Codex vault set up here. Uh, there seems to be like a whole cart system here. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what we've got going on and uh, some of the applications you've been able to apply to? Um, the vault's really a complete workflow product. You can do transcoding, you can do archiving from various different cameras, whether it's Alexa, F55, uh, RED. So it's really designed to provide one single unified workflow, no matter what the camera is coming in. So that's also seems to be very valuable. We always, we're always hearing producers saying that they didn't want to have a new workflow every time they went on a new production. So this kind of provides some standardization through the process. Um, and we've also designed a, a specific version of the Vault to work with the Alexa 65. We work very closely with Ari on the Alexa 65 in terms of the recording inside the camera. We were very heavily involved with that. Um, we also provide the media for the Alexa 65. Um, and that's actually going to be a new type of media which we're calling the Capture Drive 2 terabytes, which is a two terabyte drive. So you can actually record a decent amount of material despite the fact that the Alexa 65 frames are large in size. So um, we have two, dis two different systems that work with the uh, Alexa 65 for the Vault S and then the Vault XL, 
which is a really, really powerful rack-mounted vault system that's been specifically designed for those types of projects. What are the benefits of being able to showcase technology like this uh, at a festival like Cameramage, a place that's uh, a festival specifically geared towards cinematographers? We really think of cinematographers as being our, our customers in, in a way, even though they're not our customers in terms of they don't necessarily buy equipment, but they certainly are involved in renting our equipment from camera facilities. So we want to talk to them about what they think about our products. We want to show them action cam, which has been you know, great to have it here. I've spoken to so many cinematographers. Who have, oh, it's a great chance for them to think, oh, yeah, I could use it here or I could and actually see it and hold it rather than just looking at it on the website. They can actually feel how, how big it is. And, uh, and it's great. And some of our movies are in, you know, some movies that we've been used on are in the festival as well. So sort of meeting those people, those cinematographers, Dick Pope, people like that are here. And we can talk to him about specifically what he did with our products on a movie like Mr. Turner. So coming here is a huge opportunity for us to meet cinematographers that we wouldn't necessarily meet otherwise. There's so many of them just all here in one place. And it's, it's great for us to, to have them come by, see our products, maybe meet us. They're familiar with the company, but they've never met us personally. So... It's, it's really a great, great thing for us to do. Meanwhile, just a few steps away, Panavision was putting on a world premiere. My name is Mike Heibarger. I'm from Panavision Woodland Hills in California. We're here doing the worldwide launch for the Primo 70s. It's our latest new design of uh, lenses in our series, spherical lenses. We're here at Camera Maj basically to, it's probably one of the best places in the world to launch any kind of product, just because we have so many DPs to camera assistants, it's a melting pot. What's the response been so far? Well, so far, Gods of Egypt and Australia has shot with them, and we've heard nothing but rave reviews from Peter Menzies. Last year, we were showing select clients the lenses in projection, just to see the ultra-high performance of these lenses. For the first time, these were designed to our camera. We roughly have about 20 sets in-house ready to go down in LA. We're just really excited about these lenses. All new glass, all new coatings, uh, they're phenomenal. Obviously they're very fast lenses at T2, all the primes, a true T2, and then we have three zooms that also go with the set. Now when you say that they're designed specifically for your camera, you're talking about the Panavision 70mm digital camera? Yes, that the is still coming. We have prototypes available, but they're, they're still for test. In the meantime, uh, what other options do cinematographers have to uh, employ these lenses in the field? As of now, um, they have been on Red Dragon with a modified mount. So right now, the, the Dragon 8K is, is the only application for the full diagonal. And uh, this is uh, specifically geared towards digital cinematography? Yes, they are digital-only lenses with a shorter back focus and a wider diameter. It allows us to get closer to the sensor, so we have very telecentric rays going onto the sensor. They're very color balanced, ultra high precision up close for when you're under real high magnification. They have a real subtle, subtle focus fall off like the Primos of the, the 90s. Just at a higher frequency, the, these lenses perform off the charts. What has the response been from uh, cinematographers here at the festival? Uh, they've taken them well. Um, a lot of questions have been asked about availability and when can they get their hands on them. And uh, as of now, they're available for rent. And then what are some of the benefits of launching at, at Camera Mush, where, where you basically you have a captive audience? Well, me personally, I think it's from the, the student filmmaker all the way to the top DPs of the world. You can showcase it all in one spot. Me personally, like I said, is my second year. And I 23 years of working on lenses, I, I'm blown away myself of, of the melting pot of 
the industry. It's, it's truly amazing. Industry press is also present at Cameramage, and as one of the festival's media partners, American cinematographer sent publisher and editor-in-chief Stephen Pazello, along with three writers, Benjamin B., David Hearing, and myself, to represent the magazine. Now that the festival has passed and we've had some time to reflect on our experience there, Benjamin, David, and I thought it would be a good idea to get together on a Skype call and share our thoughts on the week's events. So my name is uh, Benjamin Bergerie, but I, my nom de plume is Benjamin B. I'm the senior European correspondent for the American Cinematographer, and I also have the honor of being a consultant member of the AFC, of the French Society of uh, Cinematographers. And finally, I have a constellation of websites called The Film Book, uh, including a YouTube channel, a Facebook page, a Twitter page, and a web page, as well as the ASC blog. And, and I just wanted to say that Camera Image is the best and biggest cinematography festival in the world. It's an amazing event. For me, it's, and of course, this is a Frenchman's perspective, it's the can of cinematography. And what's wonderful, I think, about Cameramage, it really is international, although there's a sizable American contingent, thankfully, from the ASC. And I also like to say that I've been going to Cameramage since the beginning. I was there at the very first one, I guess, more than 20 years ago. It was 20 years ago today. And um, I've just watched it grow, but always keep its wonderful spirit of you know, sharing between students, upcoming cinematographers, kind of established cinematographers and masters of cinematography, as well as other filmmakers and people in the industry. And this kind of, kind of free-flowing dialogue that you get either at breakfast, which sometimes can be at noon, or during the day in a seminar or a, a workshop, or after a screening, or again during a, a party, shouting in someone's ear at the one club, this dialogue is really what makes me keep coming back. It's just so wonderful. Yeah, my name's David Hearing, and uh, I've been writing about cinematography since 1987 uh, when I started at American Cinematographer. And uh, I currently have a, a blog on the ASC website called The Parallax View. And uh, that's the short version. Um, David, what's your experience been like with the festival? How long have you been going? This year was my ninth year, uh, um, not uh, uh, consecutive. I think the first year I went was maybe the fourth year of the festival. And, you know, I agree with Benjamin that it, it, its evolution has essentially been in scale. Uh, but they, but I feel like it has maintained uh, a level playing field and, and its essential spirit. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really love about the festival is partly due to the fact that it is remote and it is difficult to get to. We're all kind of there together, and um, uh, and so people, uh, these cinematographers, are kind of given the opportunity slash uh, forced to uh, to sit down and talk with each other. And I and I really feel like that's a very rare thing. And and I love watching the cinematographers at every level have the opportunity to sit down, talk with each other. You know, uh, I'm thinking of a, of a table at the uh, the party on Friday night for Vantage with. Uh, Stephen Goldblatt and, and Vilma Sigmund, you know, and uh, they're both in the ASC, they get to see each other. But here is an opportunity 
for, for to spend days together and uh, maybe serve on a jury together and exchange stories and reminisce. It's rare in a, in, in a number of ways. It's, the spotlight is on the cinematographers and people care what they think and uh, what they bring and uh, their sensibility. And it's rare because they get a chance to really enjoy each other's company. I mean, I often think of cinematography as a kind of a lonely job because, yes, you're out there with your crew and your family, but there's no other person in your role. There's no opposite number for you on a film set. And I feel here uh, people can really uh, enjoy each other, take encouragement from each other. Of course, like any festival, there's a huge uh, flattery element but uh, in the case of the cinematographers, it's really the only one or one of the very few. I know that all of us had panels, either that we were moderating or taking part in. And I suppose starting with Benjamin, you had two in particular that maybe we want to mention. I actually had four panels, which is my particular record. Um, I think probably the most important one for me anyway was... Um, the uh, uh, masterclass with Caleb de Chanel. It's also the one in which which took me the most work. I must have easily spent, I would say, um, 60 to 80 hours preparing it. Uh, a lot of it uh, uh, via Skype with, with Caleb, who was very generous with his time and was really willing to kind of get into the details and so on. And so for me, it was a wonderful experience to be able to spend um, a lot of time with a master cinematographer who actually I, I, I didn't really know Caleb uh, before this. And I got to know him and his, uh, um, his eloquence and his wonderful way of, of, of talking about cinematography. And during the master class, I said that I, from now on, for me, Caleb will be the prince of brightness. Because the thing that strikes me about his work is the way in which um, he uses both hard lights and highlights. And that's something that he uses again and again to give a kind of epic quality to these very American tales that he's worked on. And I was struck by something that uh, Caleb said uh, during our preparation, which is that he said that there's no greater light than a well-used hard light. And in an era when, you know, kind of soft light is the norm, it's, it's very unusual. And looking at his work, you'll see again and again those little kind of either accents of hard light or, <laughs> or these overpowering hard, hard, hard lights. And sometimes uh, he will just fill the screen with light, you know. And uh, the, the example that, that comes to my mind uh, is, uh, you know, at the end of The Natural, when Robert Redford's character, you know, hits a home run and smashes um, uh, the lamps in, in the stadium, creating these showers of sparks that just keep going on and on and on. And suddenly all the characters are completely bathed in these pyrotechnic, uh, uh, um, uh, um, you know, glints of, of light that, are, you know, it's a rain of light. And it's, uh, it's, it's a wonderful, amazing moment. And for me, it really is characteristic of, of what Caleb uh, comes to bring. So, yes, so from, from here on in, Caleb's the Prince of Brightness. When was The Natural? What year was that? Oh, God, now, now I'm stuck. 1984. Uh, thank you. It was a great panel. It was a great presentation and a great conversation. All of the, the films that you talked about were just instantly recognizable, not just by their titles or their stars, but by the look of the film itself, by its cinematography, by Caleb's work. You know, and you describe his style as, as hard light in a time when soft light seems to be the norm. But you look at films like The Natural or The Black Stallion, The Right Stuff, 
that was, what, 30 years ago. I, I'm wondering, in your study of his career, did you find that his style has developed or has it stayed more or less consistent over the course of his career? Well, I guess I, I saw I saw his his work through the you know through the seven films that he suggested we focus on, and that's my style too. You know, is I, I like to like just really get very practical and concrete and say, okay, this is what we're looking at. So um, I'm really looking at it through the um, the optic, if you want, of, of those seven films, going from the Black Stallion being there, the Natural, the Right Stuff, Fly Away Home. The Patriot and the Passion of the Christ. So I can't speak outside of that. But already in that, what I see more than uh, a progression is I, I really see a motif. I see this uh, right from the start in the Black Stallion. is It's a dazzling piece of cinematography. Uh, a lot of it in exteriors, but some incredible set pieces like on the Chinechita, the shipwreck. And I have to say that from the start, there's this kind of dazzling cinematography, full of contrasts, full of light. Once again, I, I, I have to go for this brightness theme because I, it's true that there's these dark themes and so on, but there's always this very strong presence of light. And I, I think that he, um, uh, he also seems to, uh, because of the projects maybe that we selected or something, but there's always a very epic quality about, about the stories he tells. Um, there, there's, uh, there's always something really uh, majestic, and he has a way of creating a kind of mythology with his cinematography. I guess the only exception perhaps to that would be Being There, which is a very odd film, but it's almost kind of a, um, an anti-epic, I guess. Um, and I guess in that particular one, I think it was very striking that he said that he was, um, that Being There it was an homage to Gordon Willis. Uh, which I didn't get at all when I first saw the film. Um, but I think what he was saying by that is is that being there is a very simple film uh, and and it's and it's a film in which the simple form tries to um, convey the simplicity of its main character, who's uh, um, uh, a, well, I guess a, a nice way to say it, uh, a play by Peter Sellers is a simple-minded man. David, let's talk about the panels that you were a part of. Well, I did a panel sponsored by uh, uh, Codex and uh, CW Sonder Optic uh, with Michael Saracen, BSC, about uh, his work uh, on Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And it was really, uh, the, the panel was really split into two panels. That, that was the first hour, and, uh, and then the second hour, I talked to Stein van der Vecken about his work on Alles voor Alina, and then I talked to uh, Una Menges uh, uh, about her work on uh, a, a picture called Social Suicide. And both of those uh, second uh, DPs used the, the Codex action cam. So we specifically talked about how they use this tiny camera. It's designed to be very, very small and, uh, and, and can be handheld like a cell phone uh, and, and give, uh, communicate that kind of uh, feeling that you get from a cell phone camera. And yet it's capturing images that are of, of a very high quality, and, uh, which allows for more creative flexibility with the image later in post and uh, to, to give it the characteristics visually that, uh, that are needed to, for the story. And in talking to Michael, uh, um, you know, a, a very, always, a, always a pleasure. Uh, he, he's a very self-deprecating uh, guy with a dry wit 
and um, he puts everyone at ease right away, and uh, uh, including me and uh, everyone in the audience. And uh, it's a, it's it's always a pleasure. And I'd written several stories with him uh, on this production, so I I, I knew it pretty well. And uh, and of course, uh, you know, we wanted to touch on the on the contributions that Codex uh, made to the to the production, but uh, really we we talked in a in a wide ranging way about his entire strategy uh, for for storytelling with the film and. He insists from the beginning, uh, Michael, always that uh, that he's a very non-technical person, and um, that really was kind of the recurring theme of the panel and uh, of his, uh, you know, kind of his discussion of his work on the on the film. Even though I find it this sort of fascinating uh, um, uh, paradox is that is that he is at the top of a of a pyramid that that is an incredibly complex, highly technical undertaking. I mean, you know. Uh, it, it's it's probably more technically complex to put to put a satellite in space, but but only a little, you know. And and uh, I mean, the, you know, the the armies of uh, of people, you know, uh, underneath him, uh, making sure that all of these things work properly, and and uh, are are amazing. And and he uh, insists or sees it as one of his prime, maybe his prime directive, is to make sure that that doesn't intrude on the creative process. And that he can do storytelling uh, with the camera the way he would if he were shooting a movie with five people and a Super 8 camera. And uh, that to me is a very interesting topic of conversation and to me is a very important topic of conversation in the world of cinematography today because uh, this seems to me to be a constant tension between the, the technical advances the uh, the disruption that the the, the, the latest technical uh, advancements have brought to the, the filmmaking process, and uh, um, how easy it is to lose sight of uh, what it is we're actually doing here. Uh, we're not you know tallying ones and zeros. We're we're telling stories with pictures. Now I interviewed Michael about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes for one of our podcasts, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that they shot that film in native 3D. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking to your comment, you hear cinematographers uh, talk about their relationships with their crews, with their assistants and their operators. And it seems that you can get to a certain point where when you're someone like Michael Saracen, you can leave the pixel pushing and the number crunching to other people. And it's not that they don't care to know or they don't care to remember. It's just they have other people there to assist them by freeing them up to focus on the art of storytelling. Two things that come to mind, you know, cinematographers have always fallen along a spectrum between, you know, engineer and, and, and artist and, and, and many jobs, you know, the, the job also calls for uh, that kind of expertise along a range, I, I feel. And uh, uh, I think the evolution of uh, digital technology and the, and the coming of the new workflows and, you know, the workflow was pretty standard, uh, although, you know, there was an evolution in emulsion technology over that, you know, 100 years, the workflow was essentially the same and there weren't any questions about what we were going to do uh, once the, the cameras were turned off. And now those things have all kind of, in, in, you know, uh, in flux and changing and uh, many different companies are coming along with different solutions and different, you know, and it's going to shake out. This was one of the another one of the topics that we talked about on the Codex panel. And, this, you know, we had a, a technologist, uh, the person at Codex whose job it is to strategize about the technological future was also on the panel, a fellow named uh, Jens Rumberg. And his job is to try, you know, he sees his job is to try and standardize uh, some of this uh, 
this, this workflow and keep the technology uh, um, where, where it belongs and to serve this creative process and not become the purpose of, of filmmaking. And a guy like Michael sees that quite clearly. In fact, he told stories about how early on in the production, people would come to him and, and start talking to him, you know, about the 3D or, or the digital cameras or, you know, the workflow uh, on set, near set. And, uh, and he said he had to kind of put his foot down one day and said, don't start with the technical talk to me. Speak to me in plain language. Uh, I don't want to hear any any jargon. And uh, the, the minute you say that, I'm sending you away. And uh, uh, that all of that said, I, I've always thought that the cinematographers downplay their technical knowledge. I remember, uh, you know, interviewing Sven Ickvist on, uh, on Chaplin, and uh, I was a young journalist, and I wanted to display my uh, command of the, uh, you know, cinematographic craft. And I, I asked, was asking him about key to fill ratios and foot candles and on the set, and and he said, "Oh, David, he said, I, I don't think about any of this. I leave all that to my assistants. I look through the finder, and when it's right, we shoot." And that was that really is, you know, stayed with me. But at the same time, you know, I was telling this story to my mentor George Turner, and he said, "Don't fool." yourself. Sven knows the key to fill ratio. He, he's internalized all this stuff. It's just that he's been doing it for so long, he doesn't consciously think of it. It's, uh, it, he, you know, they, they claim ignorance, but really I think they have, they, they have a command of the technical aspects of the job, uh, commensurate with their need to know. And, and, uh, and in terms of me measuring the actual numbers, they leave that to their assistants. But I think that this, um, their, their, their protestations of ignorance when it comes to the technological uh, aspects of the job may be uh, overstated. Ian, yes, I hear you had you had some quite lively uh, panels. Yes, sir. Would the tempestuous uh, uh, apply? Tempestuous? I don't. I don't know. Um, what was the word that you used, David? Contentious. Contentious. No, uh, lively and contentious at, at moments. First one was uh, sponsored by Technicolor and featured Ed Lockman, Stephen Poster, Matthew Libatik, and Nancy Schreiber on a panel about promises and perils of modern motion picture cinematography. And topics ranged from film versus digital. Stephen Poster uh, wanted to talk about the role of the cinematographer on set through post and their responsibilities, how those are changing and, and in some cases uh, becoming endangered. Also was brought up at this panel was Reed Moreno's petition against motion smoothing technology in American televisions. I don't know if they have this in Europe, um, but in the States, you know, they have these default settings that are designed to interpolate, I think, a 24p signal into something that looks more like 60i, something that looks like a, a, a daytime uh, television soap opera. Mm -hmm. This was uh, something that the poster is also involved in, but it fell into the category of cinematographers losing control over the image, over the final product. And uh, I don't know if you guys have any, any particular opinion on this, but from my perspective, it seems that this is something that has actually been going on for much longer than, than just motion smoothing. I mean, once the film goes out to the cinema, or if it goes to television, or if it goes into Netflix, goes to your iPhone, at a certain point, it seems that the cinematographer is going to lose control of their image. And, and how far does one reach in order to, to maintain that control? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole slew of, of very irritating um, features, quote-unquote, on television sets, including I've seen some that have uh, automatic uh, contrast adjustments and automatic brightness adjustments. 
Um, you know, every time I get a new TV, I have to spend like half an hour disabling all the stuff that they, all the automatic stuff that they have in there, and also turning the sharpness way down and so on and so forth. I think probably um, this, the image control issue. Um, although you know, I salute Reed's Reed's petition and 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 welcome it because it will you know makes people sensitive to the issue. But ultimately, I think it depends on on the uh, on the viewers uh, urge to really get a um the best image they can and sometimes they're less interested you know if you're looking at a film on your iPhone or whatever you might be less interested in total control of contrast and and accurate uh, reproduction if you're watching it um in a, you know on your on your TV set then uh, and you love cinema then i think you might be motivated to to uh, go in there and 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 uh, check those adjustments it's a an ongoing problem and uh and in some ways, the, the advent of uh, high-quality, comparatively high-quality televisions in the home has helped cinematography tremendously. On the other hand, there are always issues with delivery. I mean, it's, you talk to these cinematographers that put their heart and soul and blood, sweat, and tears into these images that go out on television, and, and then you, you talk to them about what happens to the signal on the way uh, to the viewer, and they just want to weep. You know, they really can't even spend time thinking about that because they would be depressed and uh, uh, suicidal because uh, uh, what people are seeing is not what, what, what they intended. That issue has probably improved somewhat over the last 20 years or, or so, but uh, it is still there and it is still an egregious problem. And uh, then, you know, the next question is, as you say, uh, Ian, uh, how far does the cinematographer reach in order to attempt to, to, to maintain control over how images are seen? What control do they have? What options do they have? Then you come to the question, what is the role of the ASC, uh, organizations like that, SIMTI? Um, is their role to try and uh, defend the progress of the cinematographer by uh, affecting techno the technology that delivers uh, imagery uh, to television viewers? Uh, you know, the projection in the theater is another whole can of worms because uh, the promise of digital technology is a, is a repeatable and a perfect rendition of the film in, in, in every theater out there in the Peoria and, uh, and beyond. And is that even uh, a realistic uh, hope? Uh, can you know? Can we get even closer to that goal? Those are all great questions, and I do not know the answers. Well, speaking with Stephen about it, uh, he seems to think that the petition is gaining ground, not just from people online and from organizations like the ASC, but apparently it's it's caught the attention of the Consumer Electronics Association, which has some influence in this in this regard. I, I believe Simti is more, I think, on the broadcast engineering side, but has, uh, can't really do anything about default settings on, on consumer electronics. But it's a small step because I personally don't, I don't think that the cinematographer or the filmmaker is ever really going to have total control over the way their films are viewed. And there are discs out there that help people calibrate their televisions and home theater system. So people do care about these kinds of things. It's just, you know, it, it like I think it's what Benjamin said, it, it, it's down to the audience ultimately, you know, to take to take those necessary steps and to, to make sure that, that they're seeing the film under the most ideal of conditions. I did want to mention um, the other panel that I moderated, which uh, was for the Polish Society of Cinematographers, the PSC. And uh, the topic uh, was archival materials um, in storytelling, uh, narrative storytelling specifically. That was an interesting experience uh, to be able to lead a conversation between 
historians and cinematographers, editors, uh, uh, documentarians, and combat photographers about objectivity in cinema, in photography, in the moral, legal, philosophical issues in repurposing the work uh, of an original author for purposes other than its its uh, original intent, specifically concerning this uh, documentary film that uh, screened at the festival Warsaw Uprising, the premise of which um, wa uh, was uh, a fictional narrative told using footage filmed by actual combat cinematographers who were in Poland in 1944 during the uh, German occupation. Uh, they worked for the Bureau of um, Information and Propaganda. This footage had been um, recovered about six hours worth and restored and colorized. A new soundtrack was added to tell the story of, of two cameramen. And uh, the, you, can, you can hear them discussing sort of behind the camera. You can't see them. Uh, you never see them. You only hear them talking. Documentary ethics. Uh, staging material as reality. It asks a lot of questions about ethics in documentary filmmaking as much as it tells a story about the soldiers fighting in the war. Uh, the, the, the panel conversation after the film, which I forgot to mention, included uh, documentary filmmaker Christian Frey, who did the Oscar-nominated documentary uh, a War Photographer, and um, uh, uh, PSC cinematographer uh, Piotr Sobaczynski Jr., who was the, uh, the colorization supervisor for the restoration. Now, the conversation did get a bit contentious um, between uh, the audience members, uh, not so much between the audience and the panelists, although a lot of important questions were raised. Just speaking to, I think, two different generations of Poles, an older generation who feels that a film like this, one that um, might be perceived as as glorifying the uh, the Polish National Army's resistance uh, against Nazi occupiers in Warsaw in 1944, and and a younger generation wary of images, particularly images that have been manipulated to change their context uh, in order to possibly tell a different message. It was an eye-opening experience for me, and I'm not sure if you've had this experience in, in the course of the panels that you, you lead and the conversations that you have. But even though we may be ostensibly leading these conversations, I always feel like I'm along for the ride. And the goal from, for me is, is, is to come away with a better understanding of the topic. Absolutely. I mean, otherwise, why do it? Yes, uh, I agree. I mean, I, I found your panel to be fascinating. And, uh, I'm very interested in and have always been interested in the the, the history of Poland and the, the fact that this festival is set there. We have a unique uh, uh, social history, uh, our cinematic history, and all of those things uh, were laid bare at the Warsaw Uprising screening and a panel. Uh, and th those kind of rich layers uh, are one of the reasons I love coming to the festival. Um, I, I'm fascinated with the use of archival materials. I, I, I'm always, I love the, the restoration story. This was, in, in, in some regards, a restoration story. And this, this idea that Poland is fighting through a very difficult history that was, uh, to some extent, so I'm told, swept under the rug after the end of the war because the, the communist authorities did not want that to be uh, a narrative that, that was out there. 
So uh, as a result, uh, some some theories hold uh, that the, now that there's more openness in Poland, they are still working through these uh, these issues and coming to terms with the history uh, through their art and particularly for us, with cinematic art, and uh, and hence the, uh, the the preponderance of uh, of World War II stories in in, in the Polish uh, films uh, competition and in the Polish films at large that you see at the festival. Whether this theory really holds any water or not, I don't know, but I find it fascinating. You, you touch upon a, a subject that I, I wanted to bring up myself. I've only been to Kamarmanj for two years. This this was my second year, but the, the Polish jury, particularly the expatriate members of the Polish jury, seem to view that as being not the most fun assignment for exactly that reason, for the reason that there's a, a darkness that seems to pervade a lot of Polish cinema. To be honest, I more agree that Polish films are highly emotional and they, they do run the gamut uh, but they, I, they are clearly working through um, some dark history. Yeah, I mean, great art uh, sometimes comes from great wounds and, and great pain. And certainly, I think in the case of Polish cinema, that's true. And that's why, uh, you know, the jurors for the Polish cinema sometimes joke about how dark and, and, and difficult a job they have. But at other times, there are these moments of absolute brilliance in Polish cinema. Uh, for example, uh, Ida. Last year's uh, Golden Frog winner, which for me was one of the best films of um, not only last year, but of, of recent years. And it's a wonderful example of, um, of a Pol Polish director addressing that dark period uh, and, and Polish, Poland's dark past and creating a, a masterpiece. But heartbreaking <laughs> still. Yeah. Painful, but beautiful. Now, that was just a fraction of our conversation. I highly recommend you check out Benjamin's comprehensive recap of the festival over at his film book blog, the link to which you can find on this podcast page, or when you go to theasc.com, find American Cinematographer in the navigation menu, then blogs, then go to the film book. This has been the American Cinematographer podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.